music, amen? Man, I tell you, um, you send your best overseas, and Eric and Anessa and their boys are the best. And they have a heart that loves the Lord, they have a heart that loves people, they're always an encouragement. I always feel like a bad person when I'm around it because Eric is just so nice. And it makes me seem like I'm just a cranky old guy, that's what I'll feel like. But that's just, man, his personality is so electric and love talking to him. And I was talking with him yesterday, came up here and they rehearsed a little bit and just kind of touching base. I didn't realize it had been four years since they'd been here last because we've had videos from them, we chat occasionally. Uh, via FaceTime and things like that, but golly, it's been four years since you were here last, and uh, you guys are awesome, and uh, there, she's headed back with the boys in August for school, and then he'll head, be heading back in September, but uh, it's all contingent upon the EU. Right now, the EU is restricted travel from America over to Europe, and so I told uh, Anissa yesterday, I was like, well, you got a job here, and so if they don't let you back in, we're looking, so uh, you can just come here. If you got your Bible, take it and turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, if you will. And uh, we're going to be in Genesis 4 for a little bit, and then I'm going to share some other uh, passages this morning with you as well. We're in this series called Faith and Culture, and the situation that we find ourselves in America today, I believe it's important that we speak to the issue. And so we've been talking. We've talked about life. We've talked about race. Now we're going to tackle the issue of social justice. And obviously, with yesterday being Independence Day, you know that our country is 244 years old. So July 4th, 1776, a very pivotal moment in history took place. And Thomas Jefferson and those other 55 members of Congress affixed their signatures to the, to the document declaring independence of the 13 colonies from the British crown. You know, the decision was not an easy decision. It did not come quickly. It was a decision that was made as the result of decades of unrelenting injustices, which forced the colonies to unanimously break away from the king. I want you to listen to how those members of Congress stated their position in that document. They say the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with, with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And then they went on and says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then they go on to talk about the grievances that the king and the crown have brought against the 13 colonies. They list out 27 different grievances, and they lay the argument out for the reason of separation. And they even articulate that this is not an easy decision for them. This is not something you quickly run to. You don't just go in and change a government. You don't change the authority over you unless there are injustices brought against you that have not changed and that are against the things that God has declared in creation and in his word. And so this document as well as the victory of the colonials against the king and his army, formed the nation, the great nation that we live in today. This nation and the principles that established it have been a beacon. They've been a blessing to the nations of the world for the past 244 years. 
and we know this to be true, but America is not a perfect people. Amen? It's not a perfect people because we're not perfect people. There's not a nation on earth that is perfect. We have a checkered past. We have a list of our own injustices. We have things in our history that we're not necessarily proud of. But bless God, we've been growing out of those things and moving forward and working out these self-evident truths that our framers held dear. Unfortunately, today, as we know, America is a deeply divided nation. Our people are pitted against another. We're, we're pitted in the area of politics, in the area of morals, in the area of, of religion and race and all of these different things. There's a fight taking place for the soul of our country, and we're fighting for who we are. And as we've been saying, we're fighting for what we are to be and what we will become. Much of it is also over what we used to be. So we've been saying something over the last few weeks, and that is the church cannot and must not stay silent. We have to speak. And I'm not talking about taking up signs, and I'm talk, not talking about necessarily marching down the street, though that may be something that believers can and should do. But we do have a role to play in this fight. And I believe the role is more from a gospel standpoint. It's us being salt and light. It's us adding flavor and pr preservation to a, a decadent culture that we live in. It's being the light that shines into the darkness. This is what the Bible and the gospel calls us to. And so as we tackle issues on life, issues on race, issues on social justice like this morning, we're looking at it biblically and we're looking at it through the lens of the gospel. And so we need to know the times in which we live, know how to speak to those times, like the men of Issachar, understanding where we are, understanding how the Bible applies and how we do take the gospel and personally inject the gospel into the conversation individually in the lives of people. So we look at the Bible for the answers to the situation that we find ourselves. We must view culture through the lens of faith, through the lens of the teaching of Scripture, not vice versa. In order to equip ourselves, and we do need to be equipped in this conversation, we're looking at these six areas. So we're looking at, at life. We're looking at race. We're looking at social justice. We're going to look at immigration. We're going to look at sexuality. We're going to look at the issue of the environment, and, and, and understand what does the Bible say about these situations. Now, we can read other sources. We can look at what others have to say about this. We can learn from them. Sociology has much to say. Psychology has much to say. Environmentalism has much to say. But we don't look at those first and foremost. We look at Scripture, scripture first and most, and we interpret those other things through what the Word of God has to say. There's a movement among evangelicalism and Christianity at large, and that is to take those, those other authorities, if you will, those other sources, and to put those on the top shelf of everything, and we're devaluing the Word of God in place of those things. And so many people in the church today are looking at sociology rather than looking at the Word of God. I say look at the Word of God and interpret sociology through that grid. So I'm, my prayer is that through this series, we're going to be able to engage this conversation and show people through the gospel that God offers a better design, a better plan for life. So we began talking about life, and we discovered that 
humans, because we're made in the image and likeness of God, we have intrinsic and eternal value. And so that principle is laid over everything else that we're looking at in this series. So the understanding and the value of human life provides then the foundation by which we are able to address all other cultural issues. We can look at the issue of race and celebrate the ethnic diversity because we're all created in the image of God. We all bear his likeness. We all have the value that God has placed on us because we're made in his image. Therefore, justice is also something that can be spoken to. And justice is not an arbitrary thing. It's not something that you understand justice in your way and, and I understand justice in my way. No, God is the standard for justice because he's the standard for holiness. He's the standard for righteousness. He's the standard for everything there is in life. We as believers today can recognize that justice is seated in the character of God. Therefore, it is instituted in the culture as individuals come to faith and are transformed through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we know there's a movement today, and it's called the social justice movement. And we see it all around us. We, we see it on the news. We see it in headlines. We see it on the Internet feed and our phones. And, and all the time, these things are coming through, different aspects of this movement. Certain segments of the populace now are recognizing what they believe to be injustices, and they're working to enact change. This movement... It's highly controversial. Monuments have been defaced. Monuments have been removed. Police departments have been defunded. Rioting and looting have destroyed cities. These events, uh, they're just the latest things that, have, that are to happen and have happened. And there's many other things that have taken place over the last several years. There's been a barrage of propaganda through the media to, to promote certain agendas and to change and alter people's perspective on issues like gender identity and, and homosexuality, the, the traditional family, the traditional marriage, immigration, the environment, whatever the issue is, there's a propaganda machine behind it altering or seeking to alter our perspectives. So when we look at this, we hear this, we, we, we are inundated with these things, we need to understand how to biblically and through the gospel to respond to them almost used my verb last week, gospelly respond, that I shared. We have no higher authority than the Bible, right, Ben? We're a Bible-believing church, right? And online, you're shaking your heads as well. We're a Bible-believing church, which means there is no other authority than this word, that what God has said is the truth. And so this morning, I want to just, as the pastor of this church, as a leader of this church, and I believe you're going to agree with me, and some of these terms I'm going to use, you may not even understand that. I would encourage you to go and do some research. But I personally, as a follower of Jesus, one who believes the Bible, denounce critical race theory. I denounce intersectionality and these, these sociological concepts that are that are making inroads into evangelicalism, our churches today. I denounce the cultural Marxism that is, that is at play in these movements becoming more and more prominent. You may be asking, what in the world is all of that? It is highly controversial and making head roads, inroads into our churches all across this country, especially in our denomination. And so when we think about social justice, and these are ways to look at these injustices from people's perspectives, 
we need to know that social justice is a varied and complex concept. This week, I really for two or three weeks now, as I've been thinking about this particular message, I have changed my approach. I don't even I don't know how many times. These are the things I need to say. No, I don't want to say that. I want to say these things. No, I don't want to say those things. And, and there's no one particular passage I'm going to because the Bible doesn't really speak specifically on any certain thing. There's just a lot of things. And this is a different style of preaching that I prefer or that I'm used to. But the Bible does speak to this issue. And yet the issues are so complex, so varied. And so I'm tr- going to try to bring it down to a real simple look at how do we view social justice from a biblical gospel perspective, and what does that mean for me as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ? So let me give you two true statements. I'm going to follow them up with three things that we need to recognize in response to these truths. Number one, God is just and always acts justly. All right, so as we seek to understand social justice, We need to know the first and foremost that God is just and he always acts justly. We believe in the fact that God does not change, right? God's character never changes. His actions never change. He doesn't, he's not fickle. He always does what he says he's going to do. And we've learned in Genesis 1 and 2 over the past two Sundays that God created all humanity and he created humanity in his image and in his likeness. We know that Adam and Eve, before the fall, enjoyed perfect community with God, perfect community with one another. There was harmony there between the Godhead and between themselves. We move to chapter 3, everything changes for them. They eat of that forbidden tree, and immediately they know that something is wrong. They begin to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves because they realize their nakedness. I told you before, the issue is not their nakedness. The issue was the fact that they had sinned, and God had left them. They realized something's missing. They're trying to fix themselves. God comes walking in the garden. They're hiding from him. God had already told Adam in Genesis 2.17 that if they ate of that tree, they would surely die. In in other words, justice would be served against disobedience to the commandment. That's what God tells Adam in Genesis chapter 2. And so what does that mean here? It means God is just. And what he says shall not be transgressed. And if you do so, this is the punishment. He does not change in that. It's not that he looked at his child, like we would look at our child sometime, and be like, yeah, I'm just going to give you a little grace here. I'm just going to give you a pass. I'm going to turn my head. That's not what God does. Adam immediately died spiritually, indicative of how they covered themselves and hid from God. We see here God upholding his word. In chapter 3, as he justly condemns Adam and Eve's rebellion by eating from this tree. He doesn't give them a pass, but instead swiftly and decisively judges their sin. Adam and Eve at that moment fell into sin, and their nature, this sinful nature, was passed on to their children. We move to Genesis chapter 4. You see that they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And you know the story. They both brought an offering before the Lord, Cain's offering was rejected by the Lord. Abel's offering was accepted by the Lord. So Cain, in his jealousy, rose up and kills his brother. Why? It's because he had a sinful heart. He had a sinful nature. And then what does God do there? Genesis chapter 4, you've got your finger in place. Look at verse 9 through verse 11. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? 
And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's the first sarcastic remark in history of humanity. And our kids have been doing it ever since. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Right here we have one example of something that is pervasive throughout Scripture. All throughout the Bible, the justness and the justice of God is on display. You see, he gives his people commands to follow, and he articulates the demands upon obedience. If we were to go to Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, we would see this unfold. He also, in that same vein, tells his people that if you obey these commands, then blessings will rest upon you, and his curse, though, will be upon those who disobey. The ultimate picture of God's justice is seen in the cross. There the Son of God offered up his life as a sacrificial payment for sin to satisfy the just wrath of a holy God. And so Jesus on the cross does not look past your sin or my sin. But instead, Jesus, the Son of God, takes your sin upon himself, my sin upon himself, and allows God the Father to exhaust his wrath upon that sin so that we can be forgiven. That's grace. That's you receiving what you do not deserve and not receiving mercy, that is, what you deserve. But he never looked past our sin. He never just gives us a flippant pass. But instead, through the cross, he absorbed the wrath and can today offer forgiveness, but it only comes through faith. As we look to Jesus, trust in his death that satisfied the wrath of God. And so what we see in Scripture is justice is clear. God is a just God who always acts justly. He is holy, righteous, and just. He never glosses over sin. So he requires those who bear his image to live justly in this world, which brings us to a second truth. Man in his fallenness, struggles to uphold justice. We all struggle to uphold justice. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 gives us a word about this. Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. These three things please God, and they are what desire what he desires to see present within culture, human culture today. Regrettably, these are not often the case. We don't see these things like we should. You don't have to look hard to see injustices in the culture. But this has been true of every culture from Eden till today, right? America is not some, some sort of new uh, cosmic type of, of experiment where all of a sudden we're the most evil culture that's ever lived. In this world today, there are cultures more evil than America. We could get on a plane and travel to some of these places around the world, and we could experience the evils of those cultures. But that doesn't mean that we don't have our own as a nation, our own as a people. We will always have injustices because this world, until Jesus returns and makes all things new, there will be sinful people living in this world. Even in the church, we will never fully live out and uphold justice to the level that God would require of us because we're struggling with this thing. We're struggling with it. We see it even, I don't have time to 
divulge it, but we see it even played out amongst the apostles. A uh, case in point would be uh, Peter um, acting one way with this group, but acting another way with another group, and Paul coming and saying, that's not right. That's not a clear picture of the gospel there. So we struggle to uphold justice. The reason God gave his commands and stipulations in his word to follow, think about it, is because without them, we will by nature act unjustly against one another. You don't teach children to sin. They just naturally do that. I've never taught my children to be mean and steal things from other kids. They just naturally come by that. Or they came by it from their mama's side of the family. I'm not sure. (laughs) It's not a Taylor trait. Going back to Cain murdering Abel. This is a prime example of social injustice or injustice in general. See, the nature of fallen humanity is to be selfish and unkind. And yet Micah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls us to what? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. It works to step on others in an attempt to better oneself. This is what selfish human nature does. I'm going to put someone else down so that I can get ahead in this world. It's somewhat like what Darwin was saying in his evolutionary theory. Human culture, left to itself, is the survival of the fittest. If I can put you down enough that raises me up, then things are okay. That's what the fallenness in man leads us to do. And yet God has spoken and directed us how to live better, how to treat others better. Much of his commands to Israel dealt with how they were to treat others. In fact, if we were to go to Exodus 22 and 23, the latter part of 22, the first part of 23, we would see Moses here speaking to Israel and laying out array an array of social justice issues and how they were to conduct themselves toward others. Why does the Lord list out these issues? It's because people struggle to uphold justice. Today, we too struggle to uphold justice because our fallen nature defaults to selfishness and unkindness. You see, we seek to understand, or as we seek to understand justice and how to live justly in this world, we must make sure that we look at things through the lens of Scripture. What has God's Word said? Specifically, how does the gospel outline how I'm to live? Well, the gospel tells us that man is sinful and separated from God. The gospel explains that man is forgiven and reconciled to both God and man solely through the blood of Christ. In other words, the the injustices that we may have between one another as humans, they can't fully be rectified until you're in relationship with Jesus and I'm in relationship with Jesus. And now we have a mediator in Christ that helps bring us together in Jesus. The gospel also portrays this transformation taking place on the individual level, which then affects others and ultimately the rest of society. The gospel never works in the group setting. The gospel works at the individual level and then changes the group dynamic. You tracking with him? I'm going to talk a little bit further about this in just a moment. But as we look at the social justice movement in our our nation today, it has great intentions. There's a lot of good intentions behind it. They understand perhaps the, the perceived wrongs that they're identifying within the culture, but the movement by and large is flawed, and so we need to understand its fallacies. I'm going to share five of them with you, try to do it quickly, and then I'm going to bring some application. First thing I want you to see about the fallacies of this movement, social justice focuses on the group rather than the individual. I mentioned earlier that the gospel talks about and focuses on the individual, not the group. Social justice today in our nation focuses on the group. 
But the gospel doesn't do that. The gospel deals with an individual sin. Social justice lumps everyone into groups and either qualifies or disqualifies them based on their connections to characteristics of the group. And so groups are like, well, you're, uh, you're of the black community, you're of the white community, you're of the Hispanic community, or you're a Democrat, or you're pop, uh, Republican. Whatever the group is, you're a woman, you're a male. It just puts everybody in groups, and those who are minorities are the ones who are lobbying to overthrow or to push back against the ruling group. Second fallacy we need to understand is that social justice identifies disadvantages of the group. Again, it's about the group, not about the individual, which means it cannot celebrate the victory or the accomplishments of those within that particular group. Think about something for a moment. Since race is such an issue today with the monuments and all the things that are happening, I'm just going to point out a couple things. So this group, whatever minority group racially you want to do, the idea is that because we're looking at the group, we have the, the, that particular movement has a hard time celebrating those who actually would have victories within that group. We just came out of eight years with a bi-ethnic bi uh, president, right? An African-American president. That's a victory for that particular group. You go to sports today in the professional uh, rankings, NFL, NBA, others, they're predominantly dominated by African-Americans, right? Those are things to be celebrated. Those are things to be won. But in this dynamic of social justice, they cannot celebrate those individual things because it doesn't necessarily fit the narrative of the group. They're always looking for the disadvantages and not highlighting, and I'm speaking generally here before I start getting things thrown at me, speaking generally, but they have a hard time highlighting the victories because it's about identity Politics, if you will. A third fallacy. Social justice assesses group outcomes. In other words, they're, they're looking at how things are going to work in favor of the group. I, I want to I work so that this group gets what this group deserves, rather than this group thinking about how we can be a better servant and a server to the other people. So it's all about bless me, feed me, take care of me, meet my needs, give to me. It's assessing group outcomes, which leads to a fourth thing, and that is social justice assigns blame for unequal outcomes. So if this group is having a negative outcome in this particular area, then we need to find out who is to blame. That's the mindset there. It's this idea of victimhood. The group isn't doing as well academically or economically or represented as well politically, then someone is to blame outside of the group. That's not the way we should look at life. The Bible wouldn't call us to look at life that way. The Bible would, look as, would tell us to be introspective. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with this person that needs to change so that I can be then a blessing to the group that I may run in? The reason for the disadvantages may result from actions or beliefs held by the members of the group, but this reality is never even considered because it must be someone else's fault. This mentality is contrary to the gospel because victimhood is soundly rejected by personal responsibility. Think about it. Jesus holds you responsible for your sin. Not Adam, because Adam sinned in the garden. He holds you responsible. Why? You may have edemic nature within you and edemic blood flowing through your veins because he's your daddy. But you're responsible for the choices that you make. The gospel calls us to be introspective, 
understand that I have responsibility for my actions and to never play the victim. Fifth fallacy, and that is social justice calls for a redistribution of power and resources to redress the grievances against the group. Man, I've got to hurry. Redistribution is the answer. Think about what, what the movement says. Redistribution is the answer for those who are victims of an oppressive culture. In other words, the group has been pushed down and prevented from enjoying the advantages of the ruling group. So therefore, the only answer is for the ruling group to be dethroned and the power and the resources of that ruling group, whoever they may be, to be redistributed to the oppressed group or groups. You say, I don't know about this. Where is this at? Well, the call for reparations is a prime example of this. A ruling class, if you will, years ago held others down. And so now, generations later, the still ruling class needs to pay, uh, offer penance for what happened long time ago. This is the idea. And so what really is happening here, if we take redistribution to its full and logical end, it becomes reverse oppression. In the area of race, it becomes reverse racism. So that what's happening is I'm going to dethrone, if I'm, the, if I'm of the lower group or the oppressed group, I'm seeking to overthrow the ruling group, and then I want to oppress and keep them down because we've been down. What does the gospel say about that? We've all been created to equal in the image of God. We all have intrinsic value. We all have eternal value. I'm just as important as you are and vice versa. And so I need to treat others as I would have to be treated. That's what the gospel says. And so the gospel would fly in the face of the social justice movement that we're seeing in our culture today. See, the gospel is not at all concerned with the color of a man's skin, if, that, if we just take one issue. And this movement is, is multiple issues, right? It's not just race. It's, it, it's marriage. It, it's sexuality. It's, it's gender. It's all of the things that we see out there. But if we were to take just race, I said last week, the Bible cares nothing about the color of a man's skin. The Bible cares about the color of a man's heart. Is he in Christ or not? Is he in sin or is he in forgiveness and the grace of Jesus? See, the only groups the gospel ever considers in the Bible is the lost and the saved, those who are headed to heaven and those who are headed to hell. It brings Jew and Gentile together into one new man, as we saw last week in Ephesians 2. It doesn't matter about our ethnicity. It doesn't matter about our socioeconomic upbringing. It doesn't matter about our... our um, our educational background or what our pedigree is or whatever group we would identify with. None of that matters. And for us in the church, it shouldn't matter that I'm a Caucasian. It shouldn't matter that someone would be a black American. It shouldn't matter that you're from Asia or from Europe or wherever or that you're from this side of the tracks or that side of the tracks. We are together as one in the body of Christ. The things that unifies us only is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. My identity is in him. Our identity together as the body is in him. It's not in anything else that this world would label us as. So the reality is that man, because of his fallenness, struggles to uphold justice. We all struggle with this, which means that we struggle with it in our culture. And so let me give you three things we need to re recognize in regard to this. Number one, recognize the God-given authority of those over you. We may not like government. 
I fuss about government all the time. How about anybody else? Uh, yeah, we, we fuss about it. But why? Because there's injustices there. We know that. But there's avenues by which to work toward correcting those injustices. We look at the Bible, we understand that government is God-ordained. Uh, the reason that the framers of the Declaration of Independence were so cautious in, in, in declaring independence was because this is not something to take haphazardly. You just don't make this decision on the whim. It's because government is God-ordained. Paul says in Romans 13, 1, that this is so. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so the first sentence of that verse, let every person be subject to governing authorities. God has given a government the responsibility of keeping peace and upholding justice. And so, think about that with me for just a moment. The police department is our ally for social justice. The legislative and judicial systems are an ally in the effort to keep sin in check. We dare not seek to destroy or replace government unless there are no other ways to seek biblical justice in the culture. In other words, what that means is we as a culture need to stand for what the Bible stands for, and when the government won't stand for those things, we see to, seek to enact change in peaceable measures. But in the case of like our, our forefathers in this country, when there was tyranny to the extreme, you throw that off. Civil disobedience, which led to war. But we're not talking about that this morning. Second thing, let's recognize, and that is the reality of injustices present in the society. We need to recognize that. Every person is a sinner. Every person has a fallen nature. Even within us as believers, there's two natures warring within us. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. The things that he wished to do, he found himself not doing. The things he didn't want to do, he found himself gravitating toward them. So we have the propensity to sin and to sin greatly. And sin creates injustices in the world as men and women serve themselves and act unkindly toward others. So we need to recognize these injustices and make them right. One way is to understand the injustices of our past. We call them what they are. We learn from them. But we do not, however, have to pay for them. Pay for the things that our ancestors did if they've been confessed and rejected. We're walking out of, we've been walking out of injustices, grievous injustices that are a part of our history. We've been walking out of that little by little. Is it as quick as we would like? No. But I'm just here to say this morning that we have been, as a culture, working our way out of these grievous injustices. And thank the Lord we're not where we used to be. We're not where we need to be, but we're moving in the right direction. So I call for civility. Of course, I don't know how far that will go, but I call for civility in our country because we're moving in the right direction. The social justice movement today would have us continually in penance over these wrongs despite the fact that we had nothing to do with them and that we publicly denounced them. And so in our own convention, this is a struggle where pastors and leaders are, are, are wondering how and how, what do we do to navigate these things. We as a convention, I believe in 95 or 96, stated that, <coughs> that we wholeheartedly reject our, the things of our past and we stand for racial reconciliation. We don't need to keep hammering that out as a church. Instead, we should seek out any and all biblical injustices toward people which devalue the intrinsic and eternal value of human life and move forward. Third thing, recognize the fact that change only takes place as the gospel is applied 
to the individual. The real hope and change that our culture needs today cannot and it will not come from a societal shift. See, it won't be achieved because particular groups gain recognition or status. And I, and I say the, the change that we need, not the change that may happen. It will not result as a power, uh, the power and resources are taken from one and given, redistributed to others. No, hope and change takes place at the individual level as sinful people are confronted with the gospel and transformation results from confession of sin, repentance of that sin, and walking in sanctification with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is our responsibilities as a church? Understand the times in which we're living and what's happening in our culture from this movement and know how to respond gospelly. There's the word again, gospelly. How do we respond to the gospel? It means the best way to change our culture is me sharing my faith with that person who needs to hear about Jesus. You sharing your faith with the person about Jesus. We're playing a long game, not a short game. We want to get out there and enact change quickly. We've got to get ahead of this, got to get ahead of this. No, here's what's wrong with our nation today and why we're heading in the direction we are. It's because we as Christians have been sitting on the sidelines and we've not been sharing the gospel with anybody. We've said in the 20th century, this is what we said as a church, come and see. Come to see our attractions, come see our big church, come see all the things that we can do. we got this for children. And we didn't really raise up disciples as the church of Jesus Christ. We might have seen a lot of conversions, but there wasn't a lot of sanctification, which really speaks to the fact those might not have been conversions to begin with. We just had a lot of people dunked in the baptistry. That's been the issue in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so I believe the reason we're seeing such a decline as a denomination today is because we've never raised up disciples for the last 50 years. And so because of that, the nation is going secular. It's because we're silent as the church of Jesus Christ. So we got to play the long game, and it starts individually. i got to invest my life in this person and share the gospel, lead them to Christ, disciple them, teach them to go to do the same thing. And so little by little, the end game speeds up and changes the face of a nation. Social justice, biblical justice comes when the people of God begin to live out the word of God in a culture that desperately needs God. The world in which the colonists lived in 1776 was much different than the culture we live in today. The gospel was alive and well within their culture, but the king was a tyrant who ruthlessly oppressed them. There was no other choice for them than to rebel and create a new government that would rightly uphold justice. But today, I don't believe there's a need to overthrow the system in order to enact change and bring about social justice. Rather, we should look to Jesus, place our faith in his gospel, and we do this as we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. This means we all will agree with what God says about sin, what his word says about sin. It means we will love our neighbor like we love ourselves, and it means we will know and stay in our rightful place before God, never thinking that we know better than him. That's what it means to walk humbly with God. You see, when we think his word and we're like, you know what, God, that's kind of archaic. I don't believe that applies to my life today or the culture in which I live or the generation. I know better than you. When you do that, you've stepped outside and you've put yourself on the throne and you've taken him off. And that's a dangerous thing to do. You know what God does when we do that? Gives us what we want. You know what's happening in our culture? He's given us what we want as a nation. 
secularism is pervasive in our culture today because we as a church have st- set silent and we've allowed the others to take the lead. And God just says, you know what, if the church is not going to be the church, I'll let you have what you want. It's time for us to take that back. We do it one-on-one with the gospel. Let's pray this morning. If you guys want to come, how do we respond to this? As a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize our responsibility. Introspection. Lord, what is my feelings about some of these issues? You know, if we watch the news, it can make us really angry at times. And so the question I would be asking this morning is, Lord, what is my heart like? What is, what is in my life that I need to confess and repent of? Maybe it's my, my, my perception and my mentality and my, my emotions toward certain groups or certain people. Maybe this morning you're like realizing that I'm not doing my part to change my little culture that I'm a part of. So what is it that you need to do this morning? Maybe this morning online or even in this room, today you realize the greatest need in your life is a relationship with Jesus. And so on the screen, there's a way for you to respond. Anybody, whatever God's speaking in your life, we want to hear from you, be able to pray with you, encourage you, and follow up with you. And so reach out to us, either through email, a direct message on Facebook, go to our website, hit that contact us button. Let us know what God's doing in your life so we can help and pray with you this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a God of justness, holy and righteous. We acknowledge also that we, by nature, are sinful and fallen and separate from you. But through Jesus, through your grace and through your mercy, through the blood that was shed, we can be forgiven of all sin, made right with God, and restored to all that you designed us to to be and to experience. Lord, I pray this morning you'd help us in our own lives and our own circles of influence to own our responsibility with the gospel to make a difference, to be a light, to be salt, to be a preserving presence in a dark world. Lord, encourage us, strengthen us, help us to engage in this conversation even this week. Lord, I pray for those who need a relationship with Jesus, either online, sitting in this room. God, help them to make that decision this morning, to put their faith and trust in Jesus, turn from their sin and turn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.